The Marching Morons by C. M. Cornbluth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. The Marching Morons, Part One, by C. M. Cornbluth. In the country of the blind, the one-eyed man, of course, is king. But how about a live wire, a smart businessman, and a civilization of one hundred percent pure chumps? Some things had not changed. A potter's wheel was still a potter's wheel, and clay was still clay. F. M. Hawkins had built his shop near Goose Lake, which had a narrow band of good fat clay and a narrow beach of white sand. He fired three bottle-nosed kilns with willow charcoal from the woodlot. The woodlot was also useful for long walks while the kilns were cooling. If he let himself stay within sight of them, he would open them prematurely, impatient to see how some new shape or glaze had come through the fire, and ping! The new shape or glaze would be good for nothing but the shard pile back of his slip tanks. A business conference was in full swing in his shop. A modest cube of brick, tile-roofed as the Chicago-Los Angeles rocket thundered overhead, very noisy, very swept back, very fiery jets, shaped as sleekly swift-looking as an airborne barracuda. The buyer from Marshall Fields was turning over a black-glazed one-liter carafe, nodding approval with his massive, handsome head. This is real purdy, he told Hawkins and his own secretary, Gomez Laplace. This has got lots of what you call real aesthetic principles. Yeah, it is real purdy. How much? the secretary asked the potter. Seven fifty each in dozen lots, said Hawkins. I ran up fifteen dozen last month. They are real aesthetic, repeated the buyer from Fields. I will take them all. I don't think you can do that, doctor, said the secretary. It cost us one thousand three hundred and fifty. That would leave only five hundred and thirty-two dollars in our quarter's budget. And we still have to run down to East Liverpool to pick up some cheap dinner sets. Dinner sets? asked the buyer, his big face full of wonder. Dinner sets? The department has been out of them for two months now. Mr. Garvey Seabright got pretty nasty about it yesterday, remember? Garvey Seabright, that meat-headed blue-nose, the buyer said contemptuously. He don't know nothing about aesthetics. Why for? Don't he let me run my own department? His eye fell upon a stray copy of Wambozambo Comics, and he sat down with it. An occasional deep chuckle or grunt of surprise escaped him as he turned the pages. Uninterrupted, the potter and the buyer's secretary quickly closed a deal for two dozen of the leader carafes. "'I wish we could take more,' said the secretary. "'But you heard what I told him. We've had to turn away customers for ordinary dinnerware because he shot the last quarter's budget on some Mexican piggy banks.' some equally enthusiastic importer stuck him with the fifth floor is packed solid with them i bet they look mighty aesthetic 
They're painted with purple cacti. The potter shuddered and caressed the glaze of the sample carafe. The buyer looked up and rumbled, Ain't you dummies through yakking yet? What the good's a secretary for if he don't take the burden of detail off in my back, yer? We're all through, doctor. Are you ready to go? The buyer grunted peevishly, dropped Wembo Zambo comics on the floor, and led the way out of the building and down the long corduroy road to the highway. His car was waiting on the concrete. It was, like all contemporary cars, too low slung to get over the logs. He climbed down into the car and started the motor with a tremendous sparkle and roar. Gomez Laplace, called out the potter under the cover of noise, did anything come of the radiation program they were working on the last time I was on duty at the pole? Same old fallacy, said the secretary gloomily. It stopped us on mutation, it stopped us on culling, it stopped us on segregation, and now it stopped us on hypnosis. Well, I'm scheduled back to the grind in nine days. Time for another firing right now. I've got a new luster to try. I'll miss you. I shall be vacationing, running the drafting room of the New Century Engineering Corporation in Denver. They're going to put up a 200-story office building, and naturally somebody's got to be on hand. Naturally, said Hawkins with a sour smile. There was an ear-piercingly sweet blast as the buyer leaned on the horn button. Also a yard-tall jet of what looked like flame spurted up from the car's radiator cap. The car's power plant was gas-turbine and had no radiator. "'I'm coming, doctor,' said the secretary dispiritedly. He climbed down into the car, and it whooshed off with much flame and noise. The potter, depressed, wandered back up the corduroy road and contemplated his cooling kilns. The rustling wind in the boughs was obscuring the creak and mutter of the shrinking refractory brick. Hawkins wondered about the number two kiln, a reduction fire on a load of lusterware mugs. Had the clay chinking excluded the air? Had it been a properly smoky blaze? Would it do any harm if he just took one close? Common sense took Hawkins by the scruff of the neck and yanked him over to the tool shed. He got out his pick and resolutely set off on a prospecting jaunt to a hummocky field that might yield some oxides. He was especially low on coppers. The long walk left him sweating hard. With his lust for a peek into the kiln quiet in his breast, he swung his pick almost at random into one of the hammocks. It clanged on a stone which he excavated. A largely obliterated inscription said, Ursity of Chick, Ological Labo, Eleven Memory of, Killed in Act. The potter swore mildly. He had hoped the field would turn out to be a cemetery, preferably a once fashionable cemetery full of once massive bronze caskets mouldered into oxides of tin and copper. Well, hell. Maybe there was some around, anyway. He headed lackadaisically for the second-largest hillock and sliced into it with his pick. There was a stone to undercut and topple unto a trench, and then the potter was very glad he had stuck at it. 
his nostrils were filled with a bitter smell and the dirt was tinged with the exciting blue of copper salts the pick went clang hawkins puffing pried up a stainless steel plate that was quite badly stained and was also marked with incised letters it seemed to have pulled loose from rotting bronze there were rivets on the back that brought up flakes of green patina the potter wiped off the surface dirt with his sleeve turned it to catch the sunlight obliquely and read honest john barlow honest john famed in university annals represents a challenge which medical science has not yet answered revival of a human being accidentally thrown into a state of suspended animation in nineteen eighty eight mr barlow a leading evanston real estate dealer visited his dentist for treatment of an impacted wisdom tooth his dentist requested and received permission to use the experimental anesthetic cyclopyridimethanol b seven developed at the university after administration of the anesthetic the dentist resorted to his drill and by freakish mischance a short circuit in his machine delivered two hundred and twenty volts of sixty cycle current into the patient in a damage suit instituted by mrs barlow against the dentist the university and the makers of the drill a jury found for the defendants mr barlow never got up from the dentist's chair and was assumed to have died of poisoning electrocution or both morticians preparing him for embalming discovered however that their subject was though certainly not living just as certainly not dead the university was notified and a series of exhaustive tests was begun including attempts to duplicate the trance state on volunteers after a bad run of seven cases which ended fatally the attempts were abandoned honest john was long an exhibit at the university museum and livened many a football game as mascot of the university's blue crushers the bounds of taste were overstepped however when a pledge to sigma delta chi was ordered in o three to kidnap honest john from his loosely guarded glass museum case and introduce him into the rachel swanson memorial girls gymnasium shower room on may twenty second two thousand three the university board of regents issued the following order by unanimous vote it is directed that the remains of honest john barlow be removed from the university museum and conveyed to the university's lieutenant james scott the third memorial biological laboratories and there be securely locked in a specially prepared vault it is further directed that all possible measures for the preservation of these remains be taken by the laboratory administration and that access to these remains be denied to all persons except qualified scholars authorized in writing by the board the board reluctantly takes this action in view of recent notices and photographs in the nation's press which to say the least reflect but small credit upon the university it was far from his field but hawkins understood what had happened and early an accidental blundering into the bare bones of the eleventh man shock anesthesia which has since been replaced by other methods to bring subjects out of leventman's shock 
you let them have a squirt of simple saline in the trigeminal nerve. Interesting. And how about that bronze? He heaved the pick into the rotting green salts, expecting no resistance, and almost fractured his wrist. Something down there was solid. He began to flake off the oxides. A half hour of work brought him down to phosphor bronze, a huge casting of the almost incorruptible metal. It had weakened structurally over the centuries. He could fit the point of his pick under a corroded boss and pry off great creaking and grumbling stria of the stuff. Hawkins wished he had an archaeologist with him, but he didn't dream of returning to his shop and calling one to take over the find. He was an all-round man. By choice and in his free time, an artist in clay and glaze, by necessity, an automotive, electronics, and atomic engineer, who could also swing a project in traffic control, individual and group psychology, architecture, or tool design. He didn't yell for a specialist every time something out of his line came up. There were so few with so much to do. He trenched around his find, discovering that it was a great brick-shaped bronze mass with an exceedingly hollow sound. A long strip of mouldering metal from one of their long vertical faces pulled away, exposing red rust that went whoosh and was sucked into the interior of the mass. It had been de-aired, thought Hawkins, and there must have been an inner jacket of glass which had crystallized through the centuries and quietly crumbled at the first clang of his pick. He didn't know what a vacuum would do to a subject of Levitman chalk, but he had hopes, nor did he quite understand what a real estate dealer was, but it might have something to do with pottery, and anything might have a bearing on topic number one. He flung his pick out of the trench, climbed out and set off at a dog-trot for his shop. A little rummaging around turned up a hypo, and there was a plastic container of salt in the kitchen. Back at his dig, he chipped for another half-hour to expose the juncture of lid and body. The hinges were hopeless. He smashed them off. Hawkins extended the telescopic handle of the pick for the best leverage, fitted its point into a deep pit, set its built-in fulcrum, and heaved. Five more heaves, and he could see, inside the vault, what looked like a dusty marble statue. Ten more, and he could see that it was the naked body of honest John Barlow, Evanston, real estate dealer, uncorrupted by time. The potter found the apex of the trigeminal nerve with his needle's point and gave him sixty cc. In an hour, Barlow's chest began to pump. In another hour, he rasped. Did it work? Did it, <laughs> muttered Hawkins. Barlow opened his eyes and stirred, looked down, turned his hands before his eyes. "'I'll sue!' he screamed. "'My clothes! My fingernails!' A horrid suspicion came over his face, and he clapped his hands to his hairless scalp. "'My hair!' he wailed. "'I'll sue you for every penny you've got. That release won't mean a damn thing in court. I didn't sign away my hair and clothes and fingernails.' They'll grow back, said Hawkins casually. Also your epidermis. Those parts of you weren't alive, you know, so they weren't preserved like the rest of you. 
I'm afraid the clothes are gone, though. What is this? The university hospital? demanded Barlow. I want a phone. No, you phone. Tell my wife I'm all right, and tell Sam Immerman, he's my lawyer, to get over here right away. Greenleaf 74022. Ow! He had tried to set up, and a portion of his pink skin rubbed against the inner surface of the casket, which was powdered by the ancient crystallized glass. What the hell did you guys do? Boil me alive? Oh, you're going to pay for this. You're all right, said Hawkins, wishing now he had a reference book to clear up several obscure terms. Your epidermis will start growing immediately. You're not in the hospital. Look here. He handed Barlow the stainless steel plate that had labeled the casket. After a suspicious glance, the man started to read. Finishing, he laid the plate carefully on the edge of the vault and was silent for a spell. Poor Verna, he said at last. It doesn't say whether she was stuck with the court costs. Do you happen to know? No, said the potter. All I know is what was on the plate and how to revive you. The dentist accidentally gave you a dose of what we call Levitman shock anesthesia. We haven't used it for centuries. It was powerful, but too dangerous. Centuries, rooted the man. Centuries? I'll bet Sam swindled her out of her eye teeth. Poor Verna. How long ago was it? What year is this? And Hawkins shrugged. We call it 7-B-936. That's no help to you. It takes a long time for these metals to oxidize. Like that movie, Marlow muttered. Who would have thought it? Poor Verna. He blubbered and sniffled reminding Hawkins powerfully of the fact that he had been found under a flat rock. Almost angrily the potter demanded, How many children did you have? None yet, sniffled Barlow. My first wife didn't want them, but Verna wants one, wanted one, but we're going to wait until... We were going to wait until... Of course, said the potter, feeling a savage desire to tell him off, blast him to hell and gone for his work, but he choked it down. There was the problem to think of. There was always the problem to think of, and this poor blubberer might unexpectedly supply a clue. Hawkins would have to pass him on. Come along, Hawkins said. My time is short. Barlow stood up, outraged. How can you be so unfeeling? I'm a human being like... The Los Angeles-Chicago rocket thundered overhead, and Barlow broke off in mid-complaint. Beautiful, he breathed, following it with his eyes. Beautiful. He climbed out of the vault, too interested to be pained by its roughness against his infantile skin. After all, he said briskly, this should have its sunny side. I was never much for reading. But this is just like one of the stories, and I ought to make some money out of it, shouldn't I? He gave Hawkins a shrewd glance. You want money? asked the potter. Here! He handed over a fistful of change and bills. You'd better put my shoes on. It'll be about a quarter mile. Oh, and you're a modest? Yes, that was the word. Here. And Hawkins gave him his pants, but Barlow was excitedly counting the money. Eighty-five, eighty-six. 
and it's dollars too i thought it'd be credits or whatever they call em e pluribus unum and liberty just different faces say is there a catch to this are these real genuine honest twenty-two cent dollars like we had or just wallpaper they're quite all right i assure you said the potter i wish you'd come along i'm in a hurry the man babbled as they stumped toward the shop where are we going the council of scientists the world coordinator or something like that who oh no we call them president and congress no that wouldn't do any good at all i'm just taking you to see some people i ought to make plenty out of this plenty i could write books get some smart young fellow to put it into words for me and i'll bet i could turn out a best seller what's the setup on things like that oh it's about like that smart young fellows but there aren't any best sellers any more people don't read much nowadays we'll find something equally profitable for you to do back in the shop hawkins gave barlow a suit of clothes deposited him in the waiting room and called central in chicago take him away he pleaded i have time for one more firing and he blathers and blathers i haven't told him anything perhaps we should just turn him loose and let him find his own level but there's a chance the problem agreed central yes there's a chance the potter delighted barlow by taking him a cup of coffee with a cube that not only dissolved in cold water but heated the water to boiling point killing time hawkins chatted about the rocket barlow had admired and had to haul himself up short he had almost told the real estate man what its top speed really was almost indeed revealed that it was not a rocket he regretted too that he had so casually handed barlow a couple of hundred dollars the man seemed obsessed with fear that they were worthless since hawkins refused to take a note or i o u or even a definite promise of repayment but hawkins couldn't go into details and was very glad when a stranger arrived from central tinny pete from algericas the stranger told him swiftly as the two of them met at the door psychist for pop prob polis signed special overtake barlow thank heaven said hawkins barlow he told the man from the past this is tinny pete he's going to take care of you and help you make lots of money the psychist stayed for a cup of the coffee whose preparation had delighted barlow and then conducted the real estate man down the corduroy road to his car leaving the potter to speculate whether he could at last crack his kilns hawkins abruptly dismissing barlow and the problem happily picked the chinking from around the door of the number two kiln prying it open a trifle a blast of heat and the heady smoky scent of the reduction fire delighted him he peered and saw a corner of a shelf glowing cherry red becoming obscured by wavering black areas as it lost heat through the opened door he slipped a charred wood paddle under a mug on the shelf and pulled it out as a sample the hairs on the back of his hand curling and scorching the mug crackled and pinged and hawkins sighed happily the bismuth resonate luster had fired to perfection 
a haunting film of silvery black metal with strange bluish lights in it as it turns before the eyes and the problem of population seemed to be very far away to hawkins then barlow and tinny pete arrived at the concrete highway where the psychist's car was parked in a safety bay what a boat gasped the man from the past boat no that's my car barlow surveyed it with awe swept back lines deep-drawn compound curves kilograms of comb he ran his hands futilely over the door or was it the door in a futile search for a handle and asked respectfully how fast does it go the psychist gave him a keen look and said slowly two hundred and fifty you can tell by the speedometer wow my old chevy could hit a hundred on a straightaway but you're out of my class mister tinny pete somehow got a huge low door open and barlow descended three steps into immense cushions floundering over to the right he was too fascinated to pay serious attention to his flayed dermis the dashboard was a lovely wilderness of dials plugs indicators lights scales and switches the psychist climbed down into the driver's seat and did something with his feet the motor started like lighting a blowtorch as big as a silo wallowing around in the cushions barlow saw through a rear-view mirror a tremendous exhaust filled with brilliant white sparkles you like it yelled the psychist it's terrific barlow yelled back it's he was shut up as the car pulled out from the bay into the road with a great vroom. a gale roared past barlow's head though the window seemed to be closed the impression of speed was terrific he located the speedometer on the dashboard and saw it climb past ninety one hundred one fifty two hundred fast enough for me yelled the psychist noting that barlow's face fell in response radio he passed over a surprisingly light object like a football helmet with no trailing wires and pointed to a row of buttons barlow put on the helmet glad to have the roar of air stilled and pushed a push-button it lit up satisfyingly and barlow settled back even further for a sample of the brave new world's supermodern taste in ingenious entertainment take it and stick it a voice roared in his ears he snatched off the helmet and gave the psychist an injured look tinny pete grinned and turned a dial associated with the push-button layout the man from the past donned the helmet again and found the voice had lowered to normal the show of shows uh, the super show uh, the super duper show the quiz of quizzes take it and stick it there were shrieks of laughter in the background here we got the contestants all ready to go you know how we work it i hand a contestant a triangle-shaped cutout and like that down the line now we got these here boards they got cut out places the same shape as the triangles and things only they're all different shapes and the first contestant that sticks the cutouts into the board he wins now i'm going to interview the first contestant right here honey what's your name name uh how do you like that folks she don't remember her name huh would you buy that for a quarter 
the question was spoken with arch significance and the audience shrieked howled and whistled its appreciation it was dull listening when you didn't know the punch lines and catch lines barlow pushed another button with his free hand ready at the volume control latest from washington it's about senator hole mendoza he is still attacking the bureau of fisheries the north carolina syndicalist says he got affidavits that john kinsley schultz is a blue nose from way back he didn't publish that the affidavits but he says they say that kingsley schultz was saw at blue nose meetings in oregon state college and later at florida university kingsley schultz says he gotta confess he did major in fly casting at oregon and got his phd in game fish at florida and here is a quote from kingsley schultz Holman mendoza don't know what he's talking about he should drop dead Unquote. Paul Mendoza says he won't publish that the affidavits to protect his sources. He says they were sworn by three former employees of the Bureau, which was fired for incompetence and incompatibility by Kingsley Schultz. Elsewhere, there was the usual run of traffic accidents. A three-way pileup of cars on Route 66 going out of Chicago took 12 lives. The Chicago-Los Angeles morning rocket crashed and exploded in the Mojave, Mojave, whatever you call it, desert. All the 94 people aboard got killed. A Civil Aeronautics Authority investigator on the scene says that the pilot was buzzing herds of sheep and didn't pull out in time. Hey, here's a hot one from New York. A diesel tug run wild in the harbor while the crew was below and shoved in the port bow of the luxury liner S.S. Placentia. It says the ship filled and sank, taking the lives of an estimated 180 passengers and 50 crew members. Six divers was sent down to study the wreckage, but they died too, when their suits turned out to be full of little hoes. And there is a bulletin I just got from Denver. It seems... Barlow took off the headset uncomprehendingly. He seemed so callous, he yelled at the driver. I was listening to a newscast. Tinny Pete shook his head and pointed at his ears. The roar of air was deafening. Barlow frowned baffledly and stared out of the window. A glowing sign said, Moogs, would you buy it for a quarter? He didn't know what moves was or were. The illustration showed an incredibly proportioned girl, 99.9% naked, writhing passionately in animated full color. The roadside jingle was still with him, but with a new feature. Radar or something spotted the car and alerted the lines of the jingle. Each, in turn, sped along a roadside track, even with the car, so it could be read before the next line was alerted. If there is a girl you want to defoculize, unromantic sweat, arm pito. Another animated job in two panels, the familiar before and after. The first said, Just any cigar? And was illustrated with a two-person domestic tragedy of a wife holding her nose, while her coarse and red-faced husband puffed a slimy-looking rope. The second panel glowed, or a vuelta abajo, and was illustrated with... Barlow blushed 
and look at his feet until they had passed the sign. Coming into Chicago, bawled Tinny Pete. Other cars were showing up, all of them dreamboats. Watching them, Barlow began to wonder if he knew what a kilometer was exactly. They seemed to be traveling so slowly, if you ignored the roaring air past your ears, and didn't let the speedy lines of the dreamboats fool you. He would have sworn that they were really crawling along at twenty-five, with occasional spurts up to thirty. How much was a kilometer, anyway? The city loomed ahead, and was just what it ought to be, towering skyscrapers, overhead ramps, landing platforms for helicopters. He clutched at the cushions. Those two copters, they were going to, they were going to, they... He didn't see what happened, because their apparent collision courses took them behind a giant building. Screamingly sweet blasts of sound surrounded them as they stopped for a red light. What the hell is going on here? said Barlow in a shrill, frightened voice, because the breaking time was just about zero. He wasn't hurled against the dashboard. Who's kidding who? Oh, why, what's the matter? demanded the driver. The light changed to green, and he started the pickup. Barlow stiffened as he realized that the rush of air past his ears began just a brief, unreal split second before the car was actually moving. He grabbed for the door handle on his side. The city grew on them slowly, scattered buildings, denser buildings, taller buildings, and a red light ahead. The car rolled to a stop in zero braking time. The rush of air cut off an instant after it stopped, and Barlow was out of the car, running frenziedly down the sidewalk one instant after that. <sighs> They'll track me down, he thought, panting. It's a secret police thing. They'll get you mind-reading machines, television eyes everywhere. <sighs> Afraid you'll tell their slaves about freedom and stuff. <sighs> they don't let anybody cross them, like that story I once read. Winded, he slowed to a walk and congratulated himself that he had guts enough not to turn around. That was what they always watched for. Walking, he was just another business-suited back among hundreds. He would be safe. He would be safe. A hand tumbled from a large, coarse, handsome face thrust close to his. What's the matter? Bumping in a people like you on a sidewalk? Got a minor slam you in a mushy a bazaar? It was neither the mad potter nor the mad driver. "'Excuse me,' said Bartle. "'What did you say?' "'Oh, yeah,' yelled the stranger dangerously and waited for an answer. Barlow, with the feeling that he had somehow been suckered into the short end of an intricate land title deal, heard himself reply belligerently, "'Yeah!' The stranger let go of his shoulder and snarled, "'Oh, yeah?' "'Yeah,' said Barlow, yanking his jacket back into shape. "'Ah!' snarled the stranger with more contempt and disgust than ferocity. He added an obscenity current in Barlow's time, a standard but physiologically impossible directive, and strutted off hulking his shoulders and bawling his fists. Well, Barlow walked on trembling. Evidently he had handled it well enough. He stopped at a red light while the long, low dreamboats roared before him, and pedestrians in the sidewalk 
flow with him threaded their ways through the stream of cars brakes screamed fenders clanged and dented hoarse cries flew back and forth between drivers and walkers he leaped backward frantically as one car swerved over an arc of sidewalk to miss another the signal changed to green the cars kept on coming for about thirty seconds and then dwindled to an occasional light runner bartle crossed warily and leaned against a vending machine blowing big breaths look natural he told himself do something normal buy something from the machine he fumbled out some change got a newspaper for a dime a handkerchief for a quarter and a candy bar for another quarter the faint chocolate smell made him ravenous suddenly he clawed at the glassy wrapper printed grigglies quite futilely for a few seconds and then it divided neatly by itself the bar made three good bites and he bought two more and gobbled them down thirsty he drew a carbonated orange drink in another one of the glassy wrappers from the machine for another dime when he fumbled with it it divided neatly and spilled all over his knees barlow decided that he had been there long enough and walked on the shop windows were shop windows people still wore and bought clothes still smoked and bought tobacco still ate and bought food and they still went to the movies he saw with pleased surprise he passed and then returned to a glittering place whose sign said it was the bijou the place seemed to be showing a quintuple figure babies are terrible don't have children and the canali kid it was irresistible he paid a dollar and went in he caught the tail end of the canali kid in three-dimensional full-color full-scent production it appeared to be an interplanetary saga winding up with a chase scene and a reconciliation between estranged hero and heroine babies are terrible and don't have children were fantastic arguments against parenthood the grotesquely exaggerated dangers of painfully graphic childbirth vicious children old parents beaten and starved by their sadistic offspring the audience barlow astoundingly noted was placidly champing sweets and showing no particular signs of revulsion the coming attractions drove him into the lobby the fanfares were shattering the blazing colors blinding and the added sense stomach heaving end of the marching morons part one by c m cornbluth